Good morning, everyone. I cannot tell you how glad I am to be here, and it would take a, a list of reasons to explain all of that emotion. Um, for one, I, I truly miss pastoral ministry. Uh, preaching now is an occasional thing for me instead of a weekly rhythm. Um, but also, I have always loved this church. Kim and Robert have always been supportive of me, um, and it was actually my idea to come and teach for you. I texted Robert and said, hey, I'm coming in the area. Can I take over for the Sunday? So, uh, so here we are. Um, I did want to just share with you a little bit about Calvary Chapel Bible College. Um, whether you know it or not, uh, this church is part of a movement of churches across the nation and across the world that came out of the Jesus People Movement. And alongside that, and because of that, also in 1975, Calvary Chapel Bible College was started down in Twin Peaks, California, the San Bernardino Mountains. And so for the last almost 50 years now, we've graduated 4,200 students uh, from every state in the U.S. except for South Dakota. That's okay. There's only like 12 people there, uh, as well as 22 countries worldwide. Um, Many of those graduates, like myself, I'm not just the president, I'm also an alumni, uh, many of them have gone on to serve within Calvary chapels, in missionary endeavors, in other places, and as significant as Craig Finley was to my life, the Bible College provided for me what I call the CCBC pivot. It changed the trajectory of my life. We still see this today as students come in, they come into our school for all sorts of reasons, and then the rest of their life they will point back to our school as being the beginning of where God took them. And so uh, we recently, last year, moved back to Twin Peaks, California. We're back in the original location. Currently we have 90 young people living on campus learning the Word of God and another 100 online and the reason why I went down there is not just because I believe in what Calvary Chapel Bible College did for me in the past, but I want to see the next 50 years be just as fruitful as the last 50 years. And so I'm telling you all of this because in my opinion, you are stakeholders in Calvary Chapel Bible College. You may have never heard the name of it before, but this is something that took our entire movement to begin. It's something that has become a fountainhead that fills and thrives, or, or that um, you know, supplies uh, local church ministers, um, and it is, uh, it is, it is something that I, I want you to realize wouldn't exist if it weren't for churches like this one. Uh, the prayers, uh, the every facet and aspect of that school owes itself to what God has done in Calvary Chapel. And so, with that being said, thank you, again, whether you knew it or not. Um, if you want to learn more about our school, calvarychapelbiblecollege.com is a good way to look into it. If you ever find yourself down at Lake Arrowhead, that's about five minutes from us, just swing by and I'll show you around. All right, so this morning, I'd actually like to talk to you out of the book of Romans, chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible... Uh, go ahead and open it up to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 6.
The passage we're going to look at this morning is significant because the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, is making sure that we know something. He wants us to know. He does not want us to be ignorant. He asks, do you not know? In fact, we'll see that many times. And what he presents here is so significant In some way, it answers the question, how do we live as Christians? And so I'd like to read this passage through, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, just the first half of the chapter through verse 14. I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to answer, with the help of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, that question, how do we live? So read with me, beginning here in verse 1. I'll go slowly. This is my NIV Bible. I don't know what translation you're reading this morning, but I'll go slow enough that you can parse it out as we go. But let's read together. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know? That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus' death were baptized, or baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives for God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, So that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is to know you more, and if there is any blessing that we have yet to comprehend or apply in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, we want it. We want to experience it to the full depths of your desire. We pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to illuminate our understanding this morning. We pray, God, that Paul's desire for the church in Rome and your word's desire for us would be completed. We pray very simply over the next 40 minutes that your will would be done right here in this room as it is in heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you look back with me at verse 1, I want you to notice that we're entering into a dialogue, a conversation mid, uh, mid-argument. When he opens, what shall we say then? Right? The implication is there's something that precedes, something before, and he's now gathering it together. And so we need to understand what Paul has done so far in the book of Romans, and it's relatively simple. He's explained that for him, he's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it is the power of God for salvation for the Jew and also the Gentile for all who believe. But then he explains why it's powerful, and he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And as he goes on, he explains that all of humanity needs the righteousness of God because we are an unrighteous and an ungodly people. And that the whole world is under the dominion or the reign or the power of sin and death. And he says, you yourselves know this to be true because death is everywhere. So he says just a chapter before this, so then death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though none of them sinned in the same way that Adam had. And what he presents is that this righteousness of God, that's at the center of the gospel, is freely available to those who put their faith in Christ. In other words, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God declares you to be righteous He proclaims as the judge of heaven and earth a verdict of righteousness. Not because you have lived a righteous life, but because Jesus' death and life is taken in your place. In theological terms, we call this justification. And depending on your New Testament translation, if you read through the book of Romans, you will see that language over and over again. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since you have been justified... The word justified just means to give a verdict of righteousness, to declare righteous. Maybe some of you came to Christ at a time where uh, the Romans Road, a, a tract that was very popular, was in use. And the Romans Road moves through the book of Romans to declare just this principle, that the power of God works through the gospel when we believe in Jesus Christ By God declaring us righteous. The reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they referred to this as alien righteousness. Think of uh, what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You hear that phrase? It's the same one, the righteousness of God. So it is undeserved, unmerited, unearned, freely given or by grace, available to all who believe just because they believe in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Now, let me use simpler language. What I'm telling you this morning is the gospel provides forgiveness. The sin in our lives can be forgiven by God, not because we've made better promises, not because we're going to figure out how to get our act together, 
Not because we've come up with a plan to set things right, but because God had a plan that he implemented in Jesus Christ. And so now that forgiveness, again, is freely available. Now, the Romans' road is good, but it is incomplete. The Romans' road, to some degree, because it ends with justification, misses the purpose of the book of Romans that begins with justification. My fear is sometimes the Romans' road is a dead end instead of a living way. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. He starts with declared righteous. He starts with what God did about your sins, plural. But now he wants to talk about what God did about sin, singular. He wants to talk not just about the forgiveness of the penalty of sin, but freedom from the power of sin. Again, the question is, how do we live? But I want you to notice, first and foremost, when Paul opens up, notice the question he asks, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Why is he asking this question? Because God has graciously and freely dealt with the penalty of your sin. In fact, he makes the case in the last chapter that even though sin increased and even the giving of the Old Testament law caused sin to increase, that led to abounding grace. So God responded to more sin with more grace. And so he says then, well then, should we bring more sin for even more grace? And the reason he's asking this question is because there were Jewish believers who knew the Old Testament law and were very nervous about Paul's gospel. Because if God freely gives forgiveness, then what motivation is there for righteous living? Why don't we just take our get out of jail card free, you know, get out of jail free card, and then live as we were living or worse because there's no fear of penalty, of punishment. But the first thing I want you to notice this morning is Paul doesn't challenge the question. This is the reality of grace, that it actually creates room for a question like this. Paul doesn't say, no, no, you've misunderstood. You still need to behave. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, yes, in the cross of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, but you are more than forgiven. He wants to talk about not the fact that Christ has died for you, but notice what he says there in verse 2. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He doesn't want you to just know that Christ died for you. He wants wants you to know that you died with Christ. Think with me prepositionally. I'm a grammar guy. I'm a structure guy. The difference is Christ died for you, in your place, on your behalf. In your place, meaning he took the penalty that we deserve upon his own body and paid it in full. On our behalf means he did that for your sake so that it could be attributed to your account. Christ died 
for you. But Paul says here in Romans chapter 6 that you died with Christ. In fact, very interesting, one of Paul's favorite Greek constructions is to take the little preposition, you know, the beginning of a word, take the little preposition soon, which means with, and attach it to everything. Okay? He's constantly coining new words. And so actually when it says here, you died with Christ, you with died. You were with raised. Okay? And he uses this construction all over the place. Again, theologically, there's a few terms that are important here. I'll, I'll lay out a few and then we'll get into the text. The first is union, our union with Christ. Those of you have, who have spent time in the Gospel of John, there's all of this language about abiding. Right? Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. That's union. For Paul, his main way of saying this as a noun is in Christ. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. But with gets us into the world of action, into the world of verbs. So he references baptism here, and I find that to be helpful. We'll return to that in just a second. But the for you and the with you are symbolically represented in these two things that Jesus gave us to do, the ordinances or the sacraments, whatever you want to call them, communion and baptism. After our sermon today, we will partake of communion together. And why did Jesus tell us to take the bread and to drink the cup? To remember This is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. The truth that we need to constantly and even tangibly remind ourselves in is Christ died for me. But baptism focuses not on Christ's death for you, but your death with Christ. That's why this church and many other churches Baptized by immersion, because the physical act of baptism becomes a symbolic representation of what happened to Christ. You died, and you were buried, and now you have rose again. This passage doesn't read like symbolism. It reads like facts. Paul wants you to know. And so notice again, verse 3 Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ uh, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says, don't you know that? Right here, Paul is being one of those fact-check friends. Paul, Paul wants to say to the Romans, actually, right? He speaks up in the conversation and says, there's, there's facts you need to know. And he doesn't just say, Don't you know that you're forgiven? He he doesn't just root this in gratitude, right? Which which is an, an appropriate reason for us to respond to God with our very lives. Paul will say later in Romans chapter 12, as Pastor Robert quoted, Since, because of the mercies of God, off your bodies is a living sacrifice. As a response of worship, 
entirely appropriate. But Paul doesn't just say here, God has given you a gift. You should be grateful. He says God has given you more than forgiveness. He has given you life. So here's another one of those theological terms. You have been justified. You have also been redeemed. Justification comes from the courtroom. It's about the verdict of a judge. Redemption comes from the world of slavery. It has to do with being set free. Okay, so the number one image of redemption in your Bibles is the Exodus. Paul writing as a Jew, when he says redeemed, he thinks of Pharaoh and slaves and God's miraculous work to bring this people out. But also Paul is writing in the first century and the church of Rome is primarily made up of non-Jewish people, of, of Romans who from all nations who have gathered together in the city of Rome. For them, when they hear redemption, they think of slaves being purchased in the marketplace. And so it's freedom at a cost. It's a change in status. But the first thing I want you to recognize here, and Paul is going to tell us to do three things. The first is we need to know, and then we need to reckon or consider, and then finally we need to present. Know, reckon, present. But if you were to go through with a pen and just look at the first uh, seven verses, in fact, you could do it all the way through verse 10, you're going to see that word know over and over again. For we know, do you not know? As Don't you know? I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know. There's a fact here. And then he wants us to do something with that fact. He wants us to reckon it. And then because we've reckoned it, he wants us to stop presenting one way and instead present another. So let's go back here again to verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A couple of observations here. First, Paul wants you to know this morning very clearly and very simply that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you have died. And so the first question for you is, did you know that? Paul wants you to know. The scriptures want you to know. God, your Father, wants you to know that when Christ died, if you have been baptized into him, now pause, you may or may not have received water baptism, but he's speaking here symbolically, just like we think of baptism as an external expression of an internal reality. If you have put your faith in Christ, Paul says you have been placed in Christ. Let me put it in very factual terms. Christ was crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. He hung there for six hours, and at the end of those six hours, he died. He was buried in a rich man's tomb 
where his body resided for a couple of days, and then he was raised to life. Fact, 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 fact. If you're a Christian this morning, there is no other option than to call those facts, because as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, there is no hope for Christians. But now Paul goes further, and he says, additional facts. You died. You were buried. You were raised. Now, an appropriate question to ask at this point is, why? Why did God, if you will, graft us into Christ's crucifixion? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Well, again, grammar saves the day. Look with me again at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that. Or your translation this morning might say, so that. That is a grammatical construction that points to purpose. It tells us why. Why did God place those who believe in Christ into Christ so that they died with Christ. Here we're told, again, verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Go back to the difference again between the problem of your sins and the problem of sin. Throughout this passage, And in chapter 5, and in chapter 7, and in chapter 8, the language Paul uses to talk about sin is language like this. It's the power of sin. It's the dominion of sin. It's sin as a master that you are no longer enslaved to. It's the rule of sin. Paul articulates this very well in chapter 7 where he says, The things that I desire to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I continue to do. Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so the cross of Christ has taken care of the penalty of sin. So much so, that in chapter 8, Paul is going to say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So much so that in chapter 5, he says, since we have been justified, we now rejoice in our suffering. Record scratch. What? Why? Because we know that the suffering we experience as Christians is not the punishment of God. And so the God who freely took that punishment upon himself must be at work, even in our suffering, for a good purpose. We know now that it is not the consequences of a righteous judge, but the providence of a loving father. But we still live in bodies that are habituated in sin. 
in a culture that has created a structure of sin. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus also did something about that. In other words, God doesn't just say, okay, I've forgiven you, now try harder. He doesn't just call you to a new life as in a new start. I grew up playing video games. One of them was Mario Kart, right, with the go-kart racing. And what happens in Mario Kart if you drive off the track is this flying creature shows up and picks you up and puts you back on the track. Some of us have that understanding of our salvation. I know I really screwed up. I'll get it right the next time. And God goes, okay, let's try again. The word even that Paul uses here for new life doesn't mean new in time. It means new in quality. Paul is saying here that it is now possible to live in freedom from sin. Now I want to be clear. He does not mean live a sinless life. Just keep reading. Like I said, Romans 7 follows Romans 6 and that's where he wrestles with the reality that there's still this place of defeat in his life. And that's okay because another thing that Jesus did is that he promised to one day take care of this in the future. So Romans 8 says, all creation groans and we groan with it, awaiting the redemption, there's that word again, of our bodies as the sons of God. Okay, so again, theologically, God has dealt with the penalty of sin. He's also dealt with the power of sin. One day he'll deal with even the presence of sin. Or to put it in Augustinian language, the early church father. As a non-Christian, you cannot not sin. Now, you cannot sin. One day, you will not sin. You can no longer sin. And so, but I want you to recognize what's, what's rooted here, and, and it's so much more than this. Like, I haven't even mentioned the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a significant part of this. Again, just keep reading. But the first thing I want you to notice here is, he says, don't you know that you have died? Don't you know that you have been raised with Christ so that, that's what we saw, you can walk in newness of life? So again, I have to ask, did you know that? Did you know that the death of Christ dealt not just with the penalty of sin, but with what, what with Paul is going to call in a second the old man? Who you were. Let's read a little bit further here, verse 5. For if we have been united, you remember what I said about union with Christ? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, there, again, we need to be careful. He's not saying you no longer have the possibility or potential to sin. He's saying that the old man has been dealt with. And I still appreciate this illustration. Now, if, if you're not a Christian this morning, this might not make sense to you because if you don't 
fight against sin, you don't realize you're controlled by it. But if you try and do the things Jesus told you to do, you will learn very quickly that it's harder than it sounds. It is if, it is as if there is a part of you that is stronger than you that is winning over and over and over again. What God says here is that old man, that part of you that was winning, your sin nature, however you want to talk about it, was nailed to a cross. Crucified wrestlers are bad wrestlers. But again, it doesn't mean that the sin nature is gone. You still have the same proclivities. And so this is the way that I think of it. It's as if he's hanging there on that cross, and one day he will no longer be totally eradicated. He can still talk the talk. He can still say, you know you want to. Come on, we've been down this road a thousand times. Every time you've said yes, just say yes again. I know temptation is hard, but the easiest way to get rid of temptation is just give in. Right? The voice of this old person is still ringing in our ears, still speaking today. But it does not have power over you. Now, do you see why it's important that you know this? I wasn't going to use this illustration because it's so narrow. But I grew up being a major fan of Jim Henson. And one of my favorite films as a child was The Labyrinth, right? With David Bowie in all of his 80s glory. And the main character, Jennifer Conley, she knows the story of the Goblin King. She's read it. The story opens and she's reciting it in the park. But there's a part she always forgets. And then she gets caught up in this whole thing, giving permission for the Goblin King to take her annoying little brother and then going after her after him and fighting through the labyrinth to get back her brother and she gets to the end of the whole thing standing before the goblin king and he makes her another offer and suddenly she remembers how that part of the story goes and she says you have no power over me and the spell is broken and she realizes that the only reason this even worked is because she had forgotten what she should have known Now, there is a part of this that is miraculous and therefore not necessarily logical. We like things that we can see and test and prove and are tried and true. We like things that are very visible and tangible. And so we want five steps to a better marriage. Paul doesn't give that here. He gives facts that we have to receive by faith. But the first step here is to know. But again, we get a purpose statement, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that, there's that phrase again, more purpose. Why did God do this? So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. They're no longer controlled by this power. Now, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Notice that that's future tense. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's talking about the fact now that although Jesus never sinned in his human life leading up to the crucifixion, he did take all of that sin upon his body and it died with him. And that's done. Jesus never needs to die for your sins again. It was done with totally and completely and fully. So his life now is fully for God. What is Paul saying here? Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we've had a verb switch there. This morning, you need to know that this happened. You need to know that part of God's plan was not just that Jesus would die for you, but that he would graft you into Christ and you would die with him. But you also need to consider that fact. You also need to reckon that fact. Now, we already talked about the danger of forgetting. Even if you've been a Christian a long time, you've studied this passage, you know these facts. There's always the danger of forgetting. That's why the Bible over and over again says, remember, 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 because we forget. But you can remember and not reckon. The word here, in Greek, it's logesomai, where we get our word logic. It means to do your sums. It means, okay, I've got these variables, I'm going to run the equation, here's the solution. It's an accounting term, okay, if somebody logesimize your taxes, they calculate them, right? All the facts are there. Every receipt, every donut you've tried to claim is a business expense. It's all there. But the accountant is the one who reckons it and says, this is what it all means. Knowledge is about facts. Considering or reckoning is about implications. You need to know that this happened, and then you need to recognize the implications of this reality. You may know that you have just been emancipated. Again, that's the language here. So imagine that you are a prisoner of war and you spend your day listening to your taskmasters digging ditches. And then one day, the allies break in and they capture the prisoners of war, and they give them freedom. Let me put it a different way. Imagine that you're a slave in early American history, and you know the facts of the Emancipation Proclamation. You haven't reckoned them to be until you say, that means I am free and no longer a slave. That's what it means to reckon. And so again, the question is, have you reckoned with this reality? And just like the fact that we forget, this is not something you do once and never have to return to. You have to realize you've stopped reckoning and re-reckon. You have to take it account to, again. You have to rehearse it until you habitually remember that who I was has died. And I now am walking with Christ in newness of life. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians. He uses totally different language. He says, put off the old you, 
and through the renewing of your mind, that's knowing and reckoning, put on walking in newness of Christ. There he's using clothing metaphor. You have this old way of living and being, you wear it, you're used to it, it's comfortable, it's everything you know. Paul says, no, 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 no. You take that off now. And you don't just take it off and walk around naked. You put on the new life available to you in Christ. And you do that, according to Ephesians, by the renewing of your mind. Or in Romans language, don't you know and reckon so that you can stop presenting and present the same truths in different language. And so you need to ask yourself this morning, what are the implications of these facts? If you have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ and the old man has been rendered inoperative and you've been freed from the power of sin, what does it mean for your choices today? Now I want you to notice that at this point, mostly Paul has laid out for us indicatives and not imperatives. Mostly he's told us about truths and not given us commands. Now, to be fair, know and reckon are both commands. But when he gets to present, he tells us what we should do about this reality. This is real, he says. You need to accept it as real, and then you need to actually do something. And here's the amazing thing. He's going to say, because of the grace of God, not only should you in gratitude live a righteous life, but because of the grace of God, you're actually enabled to live a righteous life. Now, he's going to go on in the second half of the chapter and say, you could keep walking in sin. That's the thing about freedom. If you're no longer enslaved to sin, you, you are free to sin still. He says, but where did those roads lead? I was talking with a guy once before our college service at Calvary Fellowship. He had come to our church because he was in need of gas money. And the reason he was in Washington State is because there were warrants out for his arrest. And the reason he was dealing with those warrants, because they were old, is because he had gotten a girl pregnant in California and had lived his life in this woman's mother's basement playing video games while the mom and his girlfriend went to work to provide for the baby. And then his girlfriend had enough and disappeared. And so suddenly he was the sole parent of a little baby boy. And it was a wake-up call. And he went, I need to get my act together. So he said to the mom, can you give me some time to go and deal with these things? So he came into our church. He's had all these things going on. You know, we've talked a little bit. I've gotten to know him. And we're eating dinner together before the service. And I say, you know, we're, we're about to have a, a service. And you're welcome to stick around. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm not really into all that old man in the sky stuff. And I said, neither am I. And he said, well, what I mean is, I guess I've always seen myself as the captain of my own destiny. And I leaned across the table and I said, how's that working out for you? (laughs) Right? This is what Paul is going to go on to say. Yes, in a sense, you are free to let sin continue to abound. He never denies that. But sin leads to death. And more importantly, Paul's going to go on and he's going to say, saving faith is visible because of transformation. And so if there's no change in your life, do you really believe? 
Have you really encountered the living God in Jesus Christ if you're content to continue to wallow in your sins, to continue to go your own way, to continue to be your own master, which is not your own master, it's sin controlling you? Do you really understand the significance of freedom if you don't embrace it and live it out and pursue it? And that's what brings us to this last part here, the presenting. So he says in verse 11, count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then he says this, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil's desire. Now, he uses that language of reign again, dominion. He says, but don't let them because now you have the choice. You have no power over me. You have the freedom. And so what he goes on to say, look at verse 13. He says, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, the word there for instrument is really interesting because it would be appropriately translated tools. And so think of the objectification of slavery, right? where, where human beings just become merely a tool for economic gain. He says, don't, don't give your body as a tool anymore. But the word also means weapon. And because he's talking about dominion and warfare, that's also appropriate. He says here, you were a prison of war. Don't keep fighting for the captors. You've been set free. The idea here is that you've been delivered from digging ditches. You're now free and you wake up the next morning and you're like, well, time to go to work. And you slip under the fence and you go to the ditch and you pick up the shovel and you keep on digging. He says, stop doing that. Now, I got to tell you, Paul is a realist, so he doesn't think that that's optional. He assumes that's where we are. The verbiage he used here is stop presenting the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. And again, sometimes, especially if you're a new Christian, it's not even a conscious thought. Just like that slave who's dug ditches for 20 years, you look down and you go, what am I doing? Why am I digging this ditch? It's because you've dug it every day. It's because it's natural. You're, you're going through the motions. It's the Macarena, right? You, you know the next step and you just follow through without thought. And that's the hardest part about the Christian life is as amazing as the power of God is, habits are also powerful. And God is promising you here in this text that he can break your habits, that there's true freedom, but that's not always instantaneous, miraculous, never give it another thought. Sometimes it is. Many of you have testimonies just like that. But you will eventually find there are all of these sins that either you thought were respectable, so you didn't really bother with them, or they were invisible, so you didn't know they were there. And when you go to address those ones, even though they seem minor compared to your addiction that God overcame, it's a struggle. It's an outright fight. Les Miserables, Jean Valjean has this radical encounter with grace. He's a prisoner. He's been set free. He's on parole, basically. And a priest gives him hospitality, feeds him dinner, and while the priest is sleeping, Jean Valjean steals all of his silver and disappears into the night. He's caught with a bag of the priest's silver. He's brought back to the front door. And the officers say, this man is on parole, we're pretty sure those are your forks. What do you have to say? And he goes, John, you, you grabbed the forks, but did you forget the cutlery? Right? And, and he goes and grabs these things, and he totally covers for Jean Valjean. And then as the police are walking away, he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says, you have been bought by grace. 
But here's what happens next. Jean Valjean doesn't know what to do with an act of mercy, grace, love like this. And so he's trying to process this in a local park. And there's a boy playing with a tiny little coin, flipping it in the air. And the coin hits the ground and rolls near Jean Valjean. And without even thinking, he puts his foot over the coin. And he's consciously thinking to himself, I just got off. But if the cops hear about this, right, I'm done for. And he cannot move his foot. That's what we're talking about here. That reality is still there. But what Jean Valjean needs to know is he no longer needs to present his foot as an instrument of unrighteousness that takes advantage of you know, the poor little wealth of a, of a young boy. Now, I hate to spend more time on this, but something happens later. Jean Valjean goes on to be this incredibly quietly generous man who's taking care of all these people without anybody knowing And somebody else is on trial for being Jean Valjean. And he knows that this innocent man who's not Jean Valjean is going to die unless he outs himself and says, I am the criminal in hiding Jean Valjean. And so what happens is he tells himself all these reasons why he shouldn't go to court. All the good that I'm doing will end. And as he does that, he gets in a carriage. And as he's riding along in the carriage, a wheel breaks. And he thinks, maybe this is God telling me it doesn't need to happen. And he hires another carriage. And this internal wrestling continues until his hand is on the very door of the courtroom while court is in session, and he says, that's it, I'm going home, and he throws open the door and he says, I know that that man is innocent because I am Jean Valjean. That's the power of grace, right? The wrestling is there, the fighting is there, but now something else is there too, and we call it victory. So he says, do not present any more, any part of you as an instrument of sin, going through the motions, saying, I've been here before, let's do it again. Rolling up the sleeve and saying, let's take another, another needle. Instead, he says, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of unrighteousness. Now here we get to what we call repentance. Repentance is a change. Repentance is never, you were doing this bad thing, now you stop doing this thing. In fact, it's also not just put off, put on. Remember I used that language? So Paul says in Romans 4, you used to be a thief. No longer steal, but rather work hard so that you might give to those in need. Right? It's a move from selfishness to generousness. What Paul says here is more than that. He doesn't just say, take your instruments of unrighteousness and use them He says, take your whole self and give it. Repentance is not just, I'm going to stop doing this one thing and start doing this other better thing. It's, I'm going to turn away from my sin and surrender myself wholly to God. It's a complete renewal surrender every time we repent of sin in the Christian life. That's what he's saying here. Offer your whole selves to God. Now, notice... That is surrender. The freedom, philosophically, that we're talking about here is not negative freedom. Negative freedom says true freedom is to have no masters. Christian freedom is to have the right master. The one who knows you and made you and loves you. And so here, it's not an end of work. It's 
Think of Israel. Does God deliver them from Egypt and go, okay, see ya? No. He says, I am taking you out of Egypt where you belong to Pharaoh so that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's redemption. You now belong to me. What does Paul say? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, offer your body to God because you were bought with a price and you no longer are your own. That's what we're talking about here. But the glory of this, the thing that makes this so great, is that is true freedom. To give yourself wholly and freely to God in this way is the most life-giving experience you could possibly have. Righteousness leads to happiness, to a sense of a fulfilled life, to satisfaction and to purpose. And because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, not only are you called to try it, you are enabled to achieve it. You need to know that you have died and raised with Christ. You need to reckon that to be the case in the midst of temptation, every morning when you awake, over and over again, you need to do your sums. And then you need to stop giving your body as an instrument of unrighteousness and offer the whole of yourself to the living God. Now notice how he closes, because this is genius. Verse 14, he says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now why is that genius? Because that's where he began. You remember verse 1? What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Doesn't grace give you the freedom to sin? He says, no, grace gives you the freedom to be righteous. That's the whole point. The gift that God has given isn't one that comes with strings attached. It's just bigger than you realized it was. Everything we've been talking about this morning, we often call sanctification. God has made you positionally righteous. He has declared you righteous. It was an undeserved verdict, and because of that, to some degree, it's untrue. You know, nothing God does is untrue. So there's another sense where it's absolutely true. And one day, it will be completely and fully true. But what we're seeing here is about practical righteousness. That one day, God's going to present you to the whole world and say, I told you. I told you they were my righteous people. And again, it's not because he's taking a, taking a gamble on you. It's not because he thinks, I think they could actually turn their life around given the chance. It's because he's put you in Christ. It's because he's given you the Holy Spirit. It's because he's walking with you and he's not finished with you yet. Right? What does it say in Philippians? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's work. This is what God is up to. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, stop for a moment thinking about Africa or your career and start recognizing that his will for your life is to make you more like his son Jesus. To restore the image of God. And this is where I'll finish because it's in the book of Romans. Many of us know the promise that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things 
work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But what is that good? Is it a blank check? Does it mean you get the retirement you wanted or the job you wanted or the wife you wanted? No, he says in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. God has an agenda in your life. It's a wonderful plan. It doesn't mean it's your wonderful plan. And that wonderful plan is very simple. It's to make you what he's declared you to be in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, whether we do not yet know you, whether we've known you for days or even hours, whether we've known you for years or even decades, we need these truths. We need to know or to remind ourselves or to remember that we have died with Christ. Like Paul says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We need to know that. We also need to own it. We don't need to just take hold of that truth. We need to let that truth take hold of us. And finally, Lord, we need to stop doing the things that we were doing, the things that we've habituated, offering our members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. And we need to surrender fully, completely, and wholly without reservation all that we are to you today and tomorrow and in every moment. And we can do that because of grace. First, because we know that your intentions are good for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And second, because the gift, the grace that you have given us is more than forgiveness, it's redemption. Continue this work in your people. To the glory and praise of your name. Until one day we are freed, not just from the penalty of sin, and not just from the power of sin, but the presence of sin itself. Where even the, the fake reign of sin will be dealt away with, and there will only be Jesus on the throne of our world and of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.